Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. One of the primary ways we have to approach scripture is to ask this question, not what does it mean to us? That's why as a Bible study leader in a home group, I never ask this question, what does this mean to you? The question we need to ask of the text is what does it mean? And how we get to that is to ask what did it mean? Historically, when God wanted to speak to his people, he often sent a prophet and spoke through them. We've spent much time considering the life of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah and the message of repentance that he spoke to Judah. One of Jeremiah's contemporaries is Zephaniah, known as the royal prophet because he was related to the kings of Judah. His message closely parallels that of Jeremiah, calling the leaders and the people of Jerusalem to repent and return to the Lord. What message is there for us today? Well, let's join Dr. Corbett as he introduces us to Zephaniah. We are in Zephaniah. So if you just want to, if we just have a little competition now, first one to turn to Zephaniah wins. No, no, I didn't say book of index. That's where all your, everyone's going, book of index. No, it's Zephaniah. And this is part 198 of the Jeremiah series. And the, the reason we're looking at Zephaniah, because you might think, oh, I thought this was part of the Jeremiah series. Well, it is, as you'll see in a moment, because Zephaniah, in, in many respects, is an executive summary of the book of Jeremiah. They were both contemporaries. Zephaniah would have been just a little bit older, started prophesying just a little bit before Jeremiah, and the 52 chapters of Jeremiah are really, in many respects, summed up in the three chapters of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the ninth of the minor prophets, as we'll see in a moment. But there's also something I think quite special about Zephaniah, and that's why I'm calling him the royal prophet. And so I hope this will make sense in a moment. I want to set this up by pointing out that there's a pattern both in Jeremiah and in the executive summary of Jeremiah, which is Zephaniah. And the pattern goes like this. Here is God's warning. Here is what's going to happen if you don't listen to God's warning. This is what's in store for you if you don't heed God's warning. But if you do, and if you'll trust me, says the Lord, I will make sure that you're okay through this. And that's what we call hope, giving hope. I want to anchor a bit of a story, bookend a bit of a story in illustrating this. Because sometimes we can look at things like Zephaniah and we can look at some of the minor prophets and we can look at, even at Jeremiah and we think, yeah, but well, what's this got to do with today? Well, I want to show you right now very graphically what this has got to do with today and show you how the God we worship is the God who gives hope. Have a listen to this guy. I want to introduce to you Michael and Ivy Ketterer. To get from the side of that stage to that X, it felt like a mile. <laughs> Me and all the kids, we were standing off to the side and we were so nervous. I think the very first judge I looked at was Simon Cow, and I told him I was 40 years old and I just remember him taking almost like a deep breath like, <gasps> really? <laughs> I don't have an alternate song choice. I have only one song. I have to go out there and give it my all with this one song. We were all praying that he wouldn't miss a note. But the moment that I stepped out on that stage, it was just extremely special to get to perform a song to my children in front of the world. And I got to tell them how much I loved them.
parenting wasn't on our agenda when we got married. Not at all. As a matter of fact, we got married, and when we found out you were pregnant, we both cried. <laughs> I definitely didn't feel like we were qualified to have a child, no. especially me. I was extremely immature. When we had my daughter, there was complications. Um, she came premature. She was born at three pounds, 10 ounces. Both of them almost didn't make it through that first night. Michael just looked at the doctors and he goes, look, my wife and daughter will live and not die. And from that point on, I got better, Sophie got better. But the doctors told us that it would happen again if we ever had another pregnancy. So we just made the choice to not have uh, any more children. But then, at the age of eight years old, my daughter began having dreams. In her dream, these three little boys were her brothers, and the youngest was always in danger. Over two years of having these repetitive dreams, I began to stop and like kind of listen, and we began to look into what are our options, what's the options of adopting. But we don't have, you know, $30,000 to adopt a kid from overseas. But when we met this family that adopted through foster care, we found out that not only is the adoption process free, also like their health insurance is covered through the government. And if they go to a state college, then that's covered. So I was like, oh wow, it felt like I didn't have any more excuses. When we went into foster care, they were like, what do you have to offer? And I was like, I have two things I can offer children. I have time and I have love. Our very first call that we got after getting certified and going through all the process for these three little boys. And we absolutely knew, because of my daughter's dreams, that these were our, our sons, these were our children from the very beginning. When we got the boys, I was like, I got time and love, but I didn't know they would take um, mental sanity, so. They had been raised in a meth lab. They were out in the woods. There had been a lot of neglect in their lives, and no other foster home was able to care for them because they were just absolutely too wild. There was this moment after we brought the boys into our home. One of the boys began, he began to, you know, his eyes began to roll back in the back of his head, and um, he was just laughing, this weird laugh. And my daughter looked up at my wife, Mom, I think that's a demon. <laughs> I think one of these boys has a demon. And I just laid over top of him and I told every demon in hell, I said, you have no right to this child any longer. He is under my roof and he is under my name. I just understood in that moment, you know, exactly what the father has done for us, that he covers us and he covers us with his name and it drives out all the darkness. I was goofing off with the kids and I said, okay, it's Father's Day. You all have to go around the table and say one thing that you absolutely love about me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they was, ate it up. Yeah, they, they loved it. But it got to my son, Jared, and it actually hit me a little bit off guard. And I actually started kind of tearing up. I thought this was supposed to be a fun joke. But Jared goes, he goes, Dad, the thing I love the most about you is the way that you love everybody. I actually came from a broken family. My dad left when I was 14 years old. It wasn't like my dad was a completely absent father. I just think he was working through so much inside of him that we kind of got put on the back burner, especially me at the age of 14. 
Being without a father was like being out at sea with no compass. You know, when you have a father that says, I've been here before, here we are, we're out at sea, you, you can't see the horizon, but I know this is the direction. This is the direction. So let's keep going this way. After these three boys came to our life, it wasn't the last, uh, we get another call and they said, we have this little boy and the only reason we're asking you to take him is because you're the only nurse in the foster care system right now. You're the only one qualified to take care of a little boy with cerebral palsy. We said, absolutely, yes, we will take this little boy. What I didn't know what was the amount of work that was headed our direction. <laughs> this like whirlwind, going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, neurologic deployments, because my son was shaken infant at a year and a half he was completely normal, but his caregiver shook him and threw him into a wall and it fractured his skull. A lot of damage happened to his brain. They began to tell me all the things that Roddy would never do. He'll never eat, he'll never be able to see, he'll never walk, he'll never be able to connect with anyone. And by the end, they came back to me and they said, do you still want him? The amount of work, it began to really wear me down. I walked over to my wife and I was like, Ivy, I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I do not know if we can keep Rodrigo. At a very young age, you know, I'd had people tell me, oh, you know, you have a heavenly father. Your God is, the God is your heavenly father. I just remember feeling almost kind of lonely in that. I was like, okay, God, I know you're there, but where's the, like, I, I, sometimes I just want somebody to like, you know, like hold me. I got in the car, God, if you really want me to keep this child, if this really is my son, then I need a sign, I need a sign. And I look up and they had just put up this big giant billboard. And on this billboard was this man who had pushed his son with cerebral palsy through marathons. And it said like, father, been behind son through like 50 marathons. And it was this big giant billboard in, on the road that I, on my commute that I normally would take every day. And I remember looking up at that and I go, God, you actually gave me a literal sign, a billboard. And I just broke down in the car and I think I wept all the way to his appointment. And I just felt this like peace come over me and this new wind in my spirit that, okay, he is my son and I'm not alone in this. My father, who's been behind me, who's pushed me through so many struggles, he's with me in this moment and we can do this together. So I really thought we were done. We had three, then we got Roddy Boy. And then um, I had this dream of this little black boy and I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, Lord, if that little boy is my son, bring him to me. We ended up getting another call and this next call that we got was for this beautiful little boy that was living homeless on the streets. So yeah, in total, we have six children, five adopted out of foster care. We got Mr. Sean Z. Fox, and we call him the cherry on top. Even if you're completely disabled and broken, you're still my son. I believe that's really who our father is. He's not afraid to get down in the dirt with us. Matter of fact, he sent his son 
to be just like us, experience all of our same issues and seeing us um, healed and set free. My name is Ivy Ketterer. And my name is Michael Ketterer. And we are second. And Christ is first. If you're in Zephaniah, I, I hope to show you the relevance of this in a moment because I want you to see the relevance to what we're looking at, how it makes a difference to how you live your life today how you relate to others, and how you see God. The background of uh, Zephaniah, well, let's have a look at the, what we might call the, the geopolitical background. Zephaniah prophesied at the time when King Josiah, who was the grandson of Manasseh, was king. Now, if you know anything about the kings of Judah, you'll know that Manasseh is the absolute lowlight in the history of the kings of Judah. Manasseh was someone who sacrificed his own sons, burnt his own sons. He, he tortured and, and offered them up to false gods. So the fact that any of his sons survived is amazing at all. But it was because of Manasseh's complete and utter rebellion against God that we end up having books like Zephaniah and Jeremiah because it was his sin that set a train in motion that was not stopped. So there's a small glimmer of hope when we have King Josiah. When Zephaniah prophesied, Josiah had recently discovered or the people had discovered the law and we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. If you know anything about the world empires at the time, we see in, uh, later on in Daniel that Daniel prophesied a number of kingdoms that would rise and fall and he started with Babylon but before Babylon there was the Assyrian Empire and so we have in Zephaniah a prophecy that the world power balance would shift from Assyria to Babylon this was an amazing prophecy and we've seen that also in Jeremiah Jeremiah said the same thing so when we look at the Assyrian Empire in the the green the early part and the later part of the Assyrian Empire it then became the Babylonian Empire, which is the pink of this map. So the world empire was about to change, and he was right at the cusp of this happening. In the timeline of prophetic books, I've said to you, Zephaniah is the ninth of the minor prophets. And minor doesn't mean insignificant. It just means that their books are small. There's only three chapters in Zephaniah. And where that fits is if we go through the, the major prophet is Isaiah, the second major prophet is Jeremiah. And you can see how some of these fit in and around Jeremiah. So we have Zephaniah just a smidge before uh, Jeremiah started and just before uh, Zephaniah was prophesying, uh, Nahum was prophesying. Then we go through the list. We've already seen Habakkuk. We see that Habakkuk prophesied just around about the same time as Jeremiah. We saw that Ezekiel began prophesying in the midst of Jeremiah's ministry. So Ezekiel would have been a young boy listening to Jeremiah. After him came Daniel. Daniel was a young boy on the streets of Jerusalem. He would have heard Jeremiah. And we see in Daniel chapter 9 that he quotes from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's book was well known to the people then. And then we finish up with what are known as the post-exilic prophets. Now, the post-exilic, post-after, exilic, the exile. So what, what we see in Zephaniah is that he 
prophesies that because the people of God, Judah, had been so evil and corrupt that they were about to be taken away by the next world empire, which was Babylon. And they would go into, here's the word, they would go into exile. And so what we have is the return after the exile. So all of the prophecies of Israel's being restored to the land were pre-exile prophecies. All of the fulfillment of those are described by the post-exile writers and prophets. And the post-exile writers, those who came after the exile, include Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we have these three, Zechariah, Haggai and Malachi. And they're the minor prophets. And that's where the prophets fit in the time frame. It's important to understand that what I've just told you is one story, one unified story. And all of these prophets are part of that one story. This is not a collection of random, disconnected books of the Bible. This is telling one story. Zephaniah's contemporary in ministry, we've seen Nahum was sort of coming toward the end of his ministry, but Nahum was a contemporary of Zephaniah. We see Jeremiah and Habakkuk. They were around about the same time. So I want to point out to you, in order to understand Zephaniah, we need to understand the language that's used. Sometimes we use figures of speech. We use expressions and language that if we don't understand the way it was being used, we will import our way of using it into the text and we'll distort what the text is saying. I was trying to explain this to someone just yesterday when I asked them, do you speak another language? And they said, no, or don't really. Do, do you know anyone who speaks another language? I said, oh yeah, sure. And if you know someone who's bilingual or even trilingual, you'll know just how much of any language there is what's called idioms, ways of saying something that means something quite different to what the actual idiom says. So for example, in English, one of the eas easiest examples I can present you with is uh, it's raining cats and dogs. Translate that into another language, word for word. They'll look at you like, really? But you wouldn't do that, would you? You would translate it into something that sounds like in their language, it is raining very heavily. That's what you would do. But there's expressions like that that are sometimes translated by the Bible translators into the cats and dogs sort of way of translating. And we look at it and go, oh my goodness. And I want to give you some of those now. Words like mankind. See, we read mankind and we, when we read this, and you'll read this in the first four verses of, of uh, chapter one, where, where it talks about mankind, all mankind, I will destroy all mankind. And you think, well, didn't God prophesy to Noah that he'd never do that again what's this about and this is where we need to understand the way that word is being used so let's have a look in verse 3 it says this I will sweep away man and beast I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth declares the Lord and you go well hang on we're still here what's going on because th this was a prophecy and this is I've heard some people say this is yet to be fulfilled and I'm going to say there are actually time indicators in this book same as Jeremiah that that reveal that this was not something in the so far future that the original hearers wouldn't have seen it and so when it's talking about mankind it's talking about the occupants of Israel because to the Hebrew at that time expressions like all people it was all God's people not all the people of planet earth so let's come to the next word which will also be confusing to some and it's the word earth you see we read i will cut them off from the earth in verse three 
the face of the earth. And we, re, we import our understanding of that. I want you to come back around about uh, 612 or so BC. What concept of earth did the average person have? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the concept that we have today with our satellites and we understand that, you know, earth rotation and we understand that there are people groups all over the planet. We have that today. And so sometimes when we speak of planet earth, we have that fuller understanding of it. But back then, their understanding was the earth is the land in which we live. It's where we live. This is earth. And so in the Greek, the land, the earth, uh, is, is the Greek word ge, or to be more precise, but it's going to sound strange, the word gay, because the, the E in Greek can have an A sound. But it's where we get the words like geology geography and so on it speaks of the the land and so it's it, the, the same sort of thing is mentioned in revelation 13 for example when it says the beast from the land and beast means ruler the land is israel the ruler of the land was the high priest at the time there's that kind of thing going on here so earth speaks of the land of judea at the time and here's the big expression and i've seen some crazy stuff about this it's this expression that zephaniah uses possibly at least per capita more than any other prophet in the old testament it's the expression the day of the lord and i've seen some modern writers have an absolute uh, field day speculating on what some of these verses we've just read plus others look like they are predicting a global cataclysmic destruction of all mankind that will be called the day of the Lord and I again I think one of the primary ways we have to approach scripture is to ask this question not what does it mean to us that's why as a bible study leader in a home group I never ask I never ask this question of, of the home group what does this mean to you because quite frankly that's irrelevant what it means to you the question we need to ask of the text is what does it mean and how we get to that is to ask what did it mean if we were to look over the shoulders of the original recipients of Zephaniah's book to them these three chapters which is actually a poem it's a long poem if we were to look over their shoulders and they read this what would they have understood Zephaniah to have meant there is a coming day of the Lord a day of judgment, a day when you will be punished for your sins. Are they thinking an Armageddon-ish sort of global meltdown? Is that what they're thinking? I'm going to suggest to you that the most natural way of understanding this is very simple and it simply means the day God intervenes in judgment. And we know as we read through Jeremiah, we know exactly that when Jeremiah spoke of this, that coming day of judgment was when the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They killed many and took many prisoners and that was the day of the Lord's judgment on the city as was prophesied would happen in the book of Deuteronomy. So that expression, the day of the Lord. So we read in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. And this is one of the reasons why I'm going to say to you, this is not talking about something that is yet future to us, which would be two and a half thousand years future to them when the bible clearly says it's near it's near and it's hastening fast and i'm going to say to you the most natural way to understand that is that it was goes on the sound of the day of the lord is bitter the mighty man cries aloud there and you'll read this through in zephaniah that he talks about a coming day of judgment and we're going to see why well here's the question why would god judge a nation 
Why would God do that? Why would God care? Why would God judge a nation? Why would God judge a nation that wasn't Israel, what we might call a Gentile nation? Gentile means not a Jew. Well, when that nation had become so morally corrupt that its existence posed a threat to God's redemptive plan. What do we mean by that? We mean that when there was a nation such as the Amalekites, in particular the Amalekites, who would practice child sacrifice, who would kill women and treat women as property and treat them as sexual objects and treat young children as sexual objects and offer them alive on altars of fire to false gods. And Israel came in among those people and were in threat and in danger not only of copying them, but actually being wiped out by them, these Amalekites posed a threat to God's redemptive plan. What, what is God's redemptive plan? The coming of Jesus Christ and that very first Easter. Because if the Amalekites had wiped out all Israel, the line from which Christ would eventually come would have been destroyed. And the whole earth's salvation, every person on planet earth that's ever lived, their salvation would be in jeopardy. So God intervenes in history. By the way, the Amalekites were the first nation to withstand Israel as they came out of Egypt. In Exodus, we read this, Exodus 17. You remember when Moses was watching Joshua lead Israel in battle against the Amalekites as the Amalekites came out against them. And Moses lifted his hands up. Every time Moses lifted his hands up, Israel got the victory. Remember that? And then his hands grew tight. And so Ben came along and put a great big rock just underneath the armpit there. And that kept Moses' arm up. And then Hur thought, oh, is that how it works? And he got a rock. And when Moses kept his hands up, it says that Joshua and the armies of Israel prevailed in their battle against the Amalekites. And God says this, This shall be an everlasting decree. The Amalekites must be destroyed. And it's interesting, King Saul fought against the Amalekites. He couldn't defeat them. David fought against the Amalekites. He won battles, but he didn't ultimately defeat them. When Saul, David's predecessor, fought against the Amalekites, he took their king, King Agag of the Amalekites, and he treated him as a prisoner of war and made a meal for him. And Samuel comes along and says, what are you doing? He says, well, it's, it's, I'm respecting the king of the Amalekites. I'm giving him a, a, a banquet. And if you can realize that scripture is um, very graphic at times, you might want to read what Samuel's response was. It wasn't pretty. But by this time, some of King Agag's family had run off. Agags, uh, the, the Agagites. And then we come into the book of Esther. And we read Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the Agagite. He was an Amalekite. There was something about a DNA hatred of Jews in the Amalekites. And who was it who ultimately fulfilled that, that decree in Exodus 17 to wipe out the Amalekites? It was a young teenage girl by the name of Esther. And I've heard people say, I don't know if Esther should be in the Bible. I mean, God's name's not even mentioned. And I think, are you kidding? She fulfilled one of the major prophecies of the Old Testament. And because of her, Jesus could come. It was a young, so, so this is what we learned. She was a young, beautiful, very beautiful looking girl. But she was ruthless. So guys, I'm just going to give you a principle for life. Beware of very beautiful girls. 
Let's move on, shall we? In Joshua chapter 23, verse 3, it says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations. So will, when will God judge a foreign nation? When they pose a threat to his plan of salvation for all mankind. And he's done it for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So God will do that. But, but that doesn't answer the question, why would God do it to his own people? And here's, it's a very similar answer. When Israel had become so morally corrupt that its trajectory posed a threat to God's redemptive plan. Trajectory, the way they were going. This is where they should be going and this is the way they're going. And God would step in. And so we read in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? A nation such as this? What nation such as this? His own people, Israel. And so when Israel had its civil war, the ten northern tribes uh, eventually went so far away from God, not one of their kings was righteous, not one of them sought the Lord, and eventually they were taken away by Assyria, the empire around the time of Zephaniah. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Zephaniah Part 1 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Zephaniah carried the same message to the people of Judah who were obviously slow learners. Repent and return to the Lord. More from Dr Corbett next week with Zephaniah Part 2. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.